we really need to be a lot more proud of our place than we are. And certainly we need to get away from any suggestion that kids need to be indoctrinated in a black armband view of Australian history. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life. And now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. A reminder to all of our listeners to hit subscribe or like so that you don't miss an episode. Tony, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. As always, we're going to cover a lot of ground, what the Virginia election means for Australia, uh, Australia's worrying debt situation, and some of your favourite books that have helped shape your views over the years. To begin with, the Virginia election, and as a reminder, on the 2nd of November, there was a big upset victory where the Republican Glenn Youngkin defeated Democrat Terry McAuliffe by a modest but comfortable margin of two uh, percentage points. Uh, Republicans also won the lieutenant governor and attorney general uh, positions. I'd like to talk about the key issues involved, which was uh, around education and the teaching of critical race theory at schools. Uh, But to begin with, Tony, you've been in the United States um, over the past couple of weeks, and I was hoping you could share with us your overall assessment of what happened uh, in Virginia. Sure, Dan. Very happy to do that. Look, uh, the race was hotting up while I was in the United States. Uh, The Democrat who had previously been the governor of Virginia was the red-hot favourite going into the race. Uh, But uh, as time went by, uh, Glenn Youngkin got closer and closer. And my understanding is that an absolutely pivotal moment in the race for the Virginia governorship was the debate where the Democrat candidate uh, basically said that parents had no right Uh, to any say over what happened in the classroom and uh, that parents protesting about the teaching of critical race theory, which basically uh, talks about white privilege and uh, says that our society is inherently racist and uh, white people can't help themselves. Uh, They're either racists or the beneficiaries of racism. Um, The Democrat candidate uh, was, was very strong in defending the place of critical race theory in class and denying the rights of parents to uh, to have it to have it out. Well, uh, the Republican candidate uh, he said, "Look, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the critical race theory is toxic. It's going to be banned if I win the election." And so, a state which had elected Joe Biden with a ten percentage point margin over Donald Trump back in November of last year. Uh, it swung 12 or 13 percentage points uh, to uh, to give this race to a Republican who had uh, very little profile 
beforehand, a mainstream Republican, certainly not a Donald Trump clone at all, um, who campaigned on a very orthodox Republican platform of cutting regulation, cutting tax, supporting business, particularly small business, but in particular being prepared to fight the culture wars in the classroom, which is probably the most important focus of all. So when I was there, Dan, uh, he was still the underdog, uh, but he was coming home strongly. Uh, the Democrat was still the favourite but was under pressure. And obviously this has become a, a boil over, an absolute boil over, which has been noticed right around the world. First, uh, because uh, this was a guy who was prepared to fight the culture wars on behalf of the quiet Americans. Uh, and second, because uh, he was a Republican victor who didn't seem to owe his position uh, to the former president. So uh, pretty encouraging on both counts. Thank you for that assessment, Tony. I think the most important thing you've said there is he was prepared to fight the culture wars in the classrooms. So just to give our listeners a, uh, an insight into how significant the education issue was, uh, Youngkin ended up beating uh, McAuliffe by 15 points among parents with school-aged children. Um, and that's... You know, the context for this is often education is a stronghold for Democrats, not Republicans. Often those on the right prefer to discuss the economy and national security. Those on the left prefer to discuss health and education. But it seems that um, the tide is turning a bit. Tony, can you help us understand the significance of this and what it means for Australia? Isn't it time the right started to become a little bit more courageous in discussing education and, and not just the money that's spent on schools, but what is taught in schools? It's a very good point. And for a long time, Labor has tried to make the quantum of funding, the be-all and the end-all of different political parties' commitment to education. Obviously, money matters, but it doesn't matter, in my judgment, nearly as much as uh, whether you've got uh, principal autonomy, uh, parent involvement, uh, high-quality people going into the teaching profession, and particularly academic rigour uh, in the classroom. Now, as you know, Dan, because the IPA has been running quite a campaign on this, we've got this thing called the National Curriculum. There's currently a new draft out for discussion. Uh, the National Curriculum for uh, a regrettably long time has said that every single subject taught in Australian schools has got to be taught from an Indigenous from an Asian and from a sustainability perspective. Now, I think this lends itself to indoctrination because um, if we're teaching everything from PE to maths to Latin from an Indigenous perspective, uh, the implication is that there's something vaguely illegitimate about Australia. Uh, if we're teaching it from an Asian perspective, the implication is that uh, our culture is uh, pretty inadequate compared to other cultures, and if we're teaching it from a sustainability perspective, uh, the inference is that we're actually pretty bad for the planet. So um, this whole uh, national curriculum debate, uh, particularly with the stress on teaching every, everything from uh, these particular perspectives, uh, uh, is, is a real issue. It's a real live issue, uh, and the problem is, are our kids getting an education or an indoctrination in the classroom? Now, 
Dan T, uh, not Dan T, and Alan Tudge, the Federal Education Minister, has been pretty strong on this. He said that the new draft curriculum is gravely defective. Uh, he's pointed out to the fact that the new dra draft curriculum is even worse than the old one uh, in the sense that uh, it completely banishes Christianity. It basically converts Australia Day into Invasion Day. Uh, it tells kids that Anzac Day, rather than being our most sacred national day, is a contested idea. Uh, it, it, it's, it's more into, if you like, consciousness raising than it is uh, um, um, fact inculcation. Uh, it pushes out uh, kids learning uh, things like their times tables while bringing in uh, kids being required to identify uh, examples of institutionalised racism and so on. So, so the new draft national curriculum is, uh, is, is much worse than the current national curriculum. But frankly, the current national curriculum is, uh, is not exactly great either, given that it has well and truly entrenched uh, these three so-called priorities, which are supposed to permeate everything. So, so, so good on Alan Tudge for pointing all this out. And what we need to do is to have a back-to-basics curriculum which focuses uh, on, on the things that every kid goes to school for, uh, to learn to read, to count, uh, to write, to think, uh, and to come out of his or her education with uh, a generous and sympathetic understanding of our society, its strengths, its very great strengths, as well as its uh, occasional weakness, because this supposedly racist country of ours uh, is actually a country uh, that every year uh, millions of people, uh, most of them from non-English speaking backgrounds, uh, desperately want to come to to live in. So uh, we really need to be a lot more proud of our place than we are. And certainly we need to get away from any suggestion that kids need to be indoctrinated in a black armband view, as Geoffrey Blaney used to call it, a black armband view of Australian history. And this black armband uh, mindset has dominated in our educational institutions for far too long. Uh, and as I keep saying, Dan, uh, a majority that stays silent does not long remain a majority. And it's way past time uh, for the quiet Australians to find their voice on this important topic, this absolutely vital topic for our country's future. A lot to unpack there, uh, Tony. I'll just mention that the, the research of ours that you, you referenced there was alongside our friends at Advance Australia. Uh, it was called Activism Via Education, and anyone who's interested can go to our website, ipa.org.au, and you can download a copy of that um, research there. Uh, one of the important things you mentioned, uh, Tony, is there's been uh, perhaps a laudable uh, intervention by Alan Tudge to push back on the curriculum, but maybe not as much as we'd like uh, to veto the curriculum and to have significant reform to their national curriculum. And we can juxtapose that against what happened in the United States. So the differences were very clear between uh, the Republican and Democrat. The Republican contender, uh, Youngkin, said uh, that he wanted to ban critical race theory in school, uh, build at least 20 charter schools to increase choice for parents, and make sure schools stay open for in-person class five days a week. So no more lockdowns and no more virtual learning. Whereas, as you say, McAuliffe said in one of the debates that he didn't think parents should be telling schools 
what they should teach. That's a very significant difference. Um, can you help us understand why there appears to be a reluctance at both state and federal level governments um, to make the teaching of values in our education system a front and centre issue in election campaigns? That's a very good question, Dan. And I've got to say, I, I, I scratch my head often enough and think, what, why is it that more of us don't put our feet down and say enough is enough? Why don't we say, look, uh, this is wrong? Uh, it shouldn't be happening this way. Uh, I've often thought that part of the problem with the centre-right or the liberal conservative movement in this country is that we're so polite uh, that we end up deferring far too routinely and uh, far too frequently to our intellectual and ideological opponents. Uh, and, and I guess uh, we're conscious of the fact that no one has a monopoly on insight and wisdom. Uh, we're conscious of the fact that none of us are perfect. And, and so we allow the moat in our own eye to obscure the log in others' eyes, if I might turn the biblical <laughs> metaphor on its head. Very nice. Uh, I, think, I think that's the problem. Now, you know, I, I don't say that uh, we, we, we should uh, whitewash in inverted commas Australia's history. Uh, because we have our our uh, our chapters where which don't uh, reflect uh, all credit on us like every other country, but but overall it's a great story. Uh, overall, this is a great country. Uh, overall, this is a country that we should be so proud of. Um, we all accept that to have the right to live in Australia is to have won the lottery of life. Uh, and yet our educational institutions uh, don't seem to want to celebrate our country in the appropriate way. And uh, I just think it's, uh, as I said, way past time for this to change. And I can't understand the reticence of so many people in authority, particularly ministers in Liberal National Party governments, uh, when it comes to putting their foot down and saying, hang on a minute, uh, we need a lot less um, leftist, political, politically correct uh, consciousness raising uh, and a lot more common sense and uh, ordinary appreciation of what's good in the way we live. Well, I think a part of it, Tony, gets back to what you've been saying, which is the quiet Australians can't really be quiet anymore. Um, you know, what happened in the United States is this was not a politically led uh, movement. This was led by parents and civil society. Um, there were a number Daniel, of it, you've got to have a political standard bearer. Uh, you see, the parents' revolt would have gone nowhere but for the fact that there was someone who was prepared to be the political standard bearer for it, and and that's what we need now. Maybe Alan Tudge is going to uh, convert his uh, quite laudable critique of the national curriculum into uh, a courageous rejection of it. Uh, now, I, I so hope he will, and if he won't do it, uh, maybe the New South Wales Education Minister, prodded by the new 
Premier, who was a pretty sound thinker on most things. But in order to change, as opposed merely to complain, there needs to be a political standard bearer. There needs to be a warrior who is prepared to fight. And, and that's what the uh, quiet Virginians discovered in Glen Yunkin, and that's what the quiet Australians need to have on curriculum issues here. Well, I want to now turn to another big challenge for our nation's future, this one uh, more on the economic rather than the cultural side, and that is uh, the growing issue of government debt. That'll be one of the many uh, tragic legacies of the COVID-19 uh, lockdowns. We've already got close to $1 trillion in gross Commonwealth debt alone, which is around $35,000 per Australian, and that is going to continue to grow over the coming years. Uh, Tony, your government was the last government to seriously implement measures to reduce debt. Your treasurer, Joe Hockey, famously said uh, that the age of entitlement is over. Uh, and as a result of measures undertaken by the Abbott government, debt as a percentage of GDP uh, began to taper off and then slightly declined for the first time in a number of years. Tony, can you help us understand uh, what are some of the challenges in terms of debt and deficit reduction? Well, the basic problem is that governments think they're popular when they're spending money and they think that they're unpopular when they're saving money. And yet every dollar that government spends ultimately comes from taxpayers either taxpayers today in today's tax or taxpayers tomorrow when you've got to repay the debt that you accumulate today uh, to, uh, to distribute governmental largesse. I mean, this is the fundamental truth that it is so easy to forget. Uh, government does not have any money of its own. All it has is our money, taxpayers' money, uh, which it distributes on our behalf. Now, I kept saying, Joe Hockey kept saying, Matthias Cormann back in the day kept saying that uh, we had to be as careful with our spending as you, the taxpayer, would be with your spending. And look, uh, I think that was true uh, back in 2014 and 2015. I hope it's still true, but uh, I, I do note uh, that there are innumerable spending announcements and very few savings announcements. Now, I absolutely take the point that uh, some government spending does increase the productiveness of, of our economy. Uh, some government spending, particularly on national security, is, uh, is essential. Uh, sometimes very heavy government spending on national security uh, or on economic infrastructure is essential or important. But in in the end, there's just got to be this, this spirit of frugal prudence when it comes to government spending. And that's why in a recent chapter that I contributed to a book, uh, I suggested that one of the things that the government should consider going into the next election is a declaration that other than economic infrastructure uh, or national security, there would be no new spending no new spending. That, in fact, is how the New Zealand government under John Key uh, got the percentage of uh, GDP, uh, the public sector percentage of GDP, down from 
uh, over 35% to under 30%, uh, not by uh, radical cuts to spending, but simply by being absolutely disciplined in avoiding new spending. That's hard, uh, given that every lobby group uh, is out there with uh, its hand out, and uh, there are lots of very well-meaning billionaires who will tell us uh, how bright the future will be, how th there's this cornucopia of riches just around the corner for us. If only the government would co-invest in something <laughs> that they're putting a tiny bit of their own money into. Well, that's right. Anytime you hear the word co-investment, you should uh, run a million miles because <laughs> that means uh, significant commitment of taxpayer dollars and no risk to the recipient of that typically. And, and um, again, just as I, I used to say this all the time, no country has ever taxed its way to prosperity. Again, no country has subsidised its way to prosperity. I, I, I accept uh, that it is important to invest uh, in, in national security. Um, and, and certainly, if you look at uh, the technological progress uh, that Britain, the United States and countries like Israel have achieved, a lot of that has been spin-off uh, from national security, uh, but nevertheless, uh, we we it is it is a grave error uh, to think that you can subsidise your way to prosperity. Um, uh, if if some if if a private business or a private entrepreneur is not prepared to risk uh, his or her money on a project. How much should the taxpayer be called upon to risk? I think this is a question that um, is not posed often enough. And I think one of the other issues, Tony, is it seems to me like we've got a lot more people these days who vote for a living rather than work for a living. Uh, and that ultimately, the more people that you have uh, who are beneficiaries of, of government spending, uh, be it through welfare or other forms of, of government payments, uh, the less likely they are to support obviously mm. cutting those payments. And that's understandable from their perspective, but it does lead to a, a much broader problem with our nation, which is there's, I think it was Joe Hockey uh, put it, uh, too many uh, too many lifters, too many leaners, sorry, and not enough lifters. And it does well, seem that you was, get to that a- was actually, That was actually, Dan, uh, uh, he, he lifted that fragrant phrase from Bob Menzies' Forgotten People broadcast. Right. We need lifters, not leaners. In that extraordinarily powerful and prescient broadcast all those years ago, Bob Menzies also said that too many of us are getting ourselves off the list of contributors mm. and onto the list of, list of beneficiaries. Now, if that was true early in 1942, <laughs> it's even more true uh, today. Um, now, I absolutely accept that there are some people who, through no fault of their own, uh, need government support. But at the same time, we have got to do everything we humanly can to try to ensure that people are making a contribution as well. Uh, and this is why back in my day as a minister in the Howard government, I was so determined to be the absolute indefatigable, undisputed champion of work for the dull because it's so important that the something-for-nothing mindset does not become entrenched and it's so important that we give people the chance to demonstrate what they can do, not merely what they can't do. And that was what work for the dull was all about. Now, um, I was doing my best to uh, 
to reinstitute uh, various forms of work for the dole uh, for longer term unemployed people, particularly those under 50. I was trying to uh, try to find a way of bringing in, if you like, a kind of private sector work for the dole, which hopefully would be a stepping stone to a job. Uh, but that all seemed to go by the board um, after after 2015. Thank you for that assessment, um, Tony. What I thought we could do to end our discussion today uh, is to do something a little bit different, uh, which is uh, for us to have a quick chat about some of the books that have helped shape your thinking, shaped your views, shaped your perspective um, over the years. Uh, would you like to share with us one or two of your, your favourites? Very happy to, Dan. Look, uh, I first read A Fortunate Life uh, by Bert Facey when it came out in the early 80s. And I found it then a magnificently uplifting and inspirational read. It, it was in some ways a, a tragic story of a young kid who had the toughest imaginable life and yet by grit and uh, love from a few key people, even though he didn't get love from other people who he should have had it from, he overcame extraordinary privation and difficulty. And I was looking for something on YouTube, I think, in the end I was searching for something on and I came across a Bert Facey television series, a Fortunate Life television series that was produced in the early 80s. And it, it was really wonderful to watch. Uh, Maggie and I watched it, uh, got a lot out of it. It was, it was quite dated, I've got to say. And I suppose it, 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 it indicated to me not just how much life has changed since the early 1900s, but how much life has changed since the 1980s, in fact, uh, when this series was, was put together. Uh, but look, if, if you want uh, a window into the soul uh, of the great war generation uh, of the guys that went to Gallipoli and then on to the Western Front, a fortunate life is a, is, is a, is a really good way to get that. The other book I'd, I'd mention is Clive James's Unreliable Memoirs. Now, Clive James, who's sadly no longer with us, uh, uh, a magnificent human being, not without fault or flaw, but a magnificent human being who has left us a marvellous legacy. Uh, I don't think anyone, particularly uh, a sort of a young adult male, uh, would not benefit immensely from a reading of unreliable memoirs, an extraordinarily rich and deep story uh, of growing up, again, in at times difficult circumstances, but growing up in, in, in Sydney in the 1940s and 50s before heading off to university and then ultimately London in the early 1960s. Uh, just, just fantastic. Uh, deep, funny, uh, insightful, uh, a, a magnificent read. Uh, and, of course, Clive James can't help but bon mo, and he says, uh, uh, I think he says at the beginning of the book, he says, uh, uh, most autobiography is disguised fiction. What does he say? He said, most fiction is disguised autobiography. This autobiography is disguised fiction. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe it straddles both genres, but I tell you, it is it is a magnificent read, and I couldn't recommend it too highly to the listeners of the, 
uh, this, these broadcasts. No, thank you, Tony. Those are two um, wonderful books. And I will just take this opportunity to say that um, there's a project on at the Institute of Public Affairs called the Centre for the Australian Way of Life, which uh, Tony is, is a part of as a, a distinguished fellow. And one of the projects that we have is called the Genius of Australia, uh, which discusses and catalogues, if you like, some of the major uh, and seminal works uh, of Australian history, culture, uh, poetry, film, and so forth, because there is such a wonderful story to tell about Australian history and how we became the great democracy um, that we are today. There is so much, Daniel, that if you if you were going through the school system today uh, under the baleful influence of the so-called national curriculum, you would be oblivious to. Uh, and so these are the works that Australians should be familiar with. Not that you've got to have read every one of them, uh, but you should you should have read quite a few of them and be familiar with most of them if you are going to be uh, a culturally literate Australian who understands how it is that we came to be the country that we are and who understands something of uh, what has made the best of us tick uh, over the last couple of hundred years. Absolutely, Tony. On that note, uh, thank you again for a lovely discussion. I very much enjoyed it. I hope all of our listeners have enjoyed it and I'm looking forward again to our discussion next week. Thanks, Daniel. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.